We've been uh, talking a little bit about keystones of Christian faith, uh, and uh, we are working through this series uh, together. I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, we're going to spend a little bit of time. We've been jumping around through a lot of different passages. We're going to spend a little bit of time today in John chapter 5, and there is actually a Bible app event for this. As always, if you have the YouVersion Bible app, you can go there, and those passages, those verses will be readily available to you. Some of you may wonder, some of you may ask yourself, where does Pastor Steve get stuff like this? Where did he get this series, A Keystone of Christian Faith? And it actually came from a book that I mentioned to you a few months ago, a book that I happened upon uh, called Healing of a Wounded Idealist. And the subtitle is this, A Guide Back to Faith for the Christian Cynic. I read that book probably in one day. It was a pretty easy read. It was a pretty good read. I really enjoyed it a lot. I didn't read it because I need a guide back to faith. <laughs> That's not why. I read it because maybe like some of you, I kind of fancy myself an idealist. And I feel like this is the way it should be. This is the way school should be. This is the way the Department of Motor Vehicles should be. This is the way the IRS should be. This is the way church should be. This is the way my family should be. And I have this ideal of how things should be, and then it's not that way. And I feel like I'm a wounded idealist sometimes. But even more for myself, I struggle with cynicism. Real God, real life, real people. We don't hide at Kerwinsville Alliance. We admit our faults. Cynicism is something always lurking at my door. It's always there. I read that book. It was a good book to read. I recommend it. And, and then at the end of the book, Justin and Irene Renton, the authors, they said, here's uh, a few things that people who struggle with cynicism should probably address. And those things were humility, mercy, patience, perseverance. Sound familiar? Those are the past four sermons that I preached to you. And that's where this list comes from. That's where these keystones come from. Pastor Bernie added forgiveness because he looked at my list. He said, you forgot forgiveness. I said, yeah, do forgiveness. And so when he filled in for me, Bernie Neffley preached on that. Today, the keystone that I want to preach to you about is work. Did you ever think of work as being important to your faith or a keystone of your faith? Now we're going to look at John chapter 5. We're going to read the first four verses. Uh, I'll read those to you. And then we're going to, along about verse 5, we're going to start taking it apart a little bit and just make some observations about what's going on there and kind of apply that to the issue of work. So let's look at verse 1. First, did I say First John? Do I keep saying First John? It is not First John. It's the Gospel of John. I'm okay? Thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay, the Gospel of John, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And then your Bible may or may not have verse four because early versions don't have this passage, but at, at least it was added by a scribe who said, you know, this might help people understand what's going on here. I'm kind of glad he added it. I wish he'd written it in the margin instead of in the text, but that's neither here nor there. Listen to what verse 4 says. And they waited for the moving of the waters. From time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. The first one into the pool after each such disturbance would be cured of whatever disease they had. Okay, so there's kind of the background. As we move forward from here, I kind of just want to make several observations about this healing and about this incident that happens. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay. So it's kind of a given that this man was used to his condition. 
he was accustomed to the state that he was in. It had been 38 years. And it's very difficult to really get any hard data on there, on this. But, but there is a good argument that the life expectancy of someone in the first century was only 35 years. Now think about that for a moment. In fact, when, when you throw out the infant mortality, that number only goes up to the late 50s. So this guy has lived a typical life as an invalid. If he lives another 12 years, that's probably all he's got left is a dozen years or so. And then he would be a very old man and it would be exceptional. He was used to being this way. And the socioeconomic system he found himself in would make him a beggar. He would beg for a living. He didn't work for a living. In fact, I I feel confident he may never have worked a day in his life. Now look what verse 6 says. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? And that leads to my second observation. This man needed to change. Something had to change in his life. And Jesus offered this change, but he asked the man, do you want it? Do you want to get well? I've heard whole sermons preached on that phrase. I've preached sermons on that phrase before. Perhaps this man was quite satisfied with his condition as an invalid, or at least resigned to it. Take a look at his words in reply to Jesus in verse 7. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I don't know, was he making excuses? Is that really what was happening? We'll never know, honestly, if that was an excuse or a reality. But we do know this. I think you know this. That there are some people who, when they find themselves in a condition like this man found himself in, they're just quite satisfied to let someone else do the heavy lifting and do the work. They kind of tend to accept their position, and not in a good and godly way but maybe in a a different kind of way. However, consider my third observation. This man was actually put to work upon his healing. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't send him on an errand. Jesus doesn't say, go find a merchant. I know one. He lives on this side of town, and he'll hire you as a servant. Jesus doesn't send him to work in a vineyard somewhere to get a job at an olive press. Look at verse 8, and you can see the work that he gives him. Then Jesus said to him, get up pick up your mat and walk. Jesus had done the healing, just like that. He didn't even say, be healed, you know? He didn't even look up at his father in heaven and say, Father, would you heal? There's nothing out loud coming out of Jesus' mouth. He does it that quickly. And you know it's a real healing because you know the man was really sick because verse nine begins with, at once the man was cured. And he picked up his mat and walked. He did what Jesus was commanding him to do. And strangely enough, he gets in trouble for doing that. This man gets in trouble for doing what a healer told him to do. The second part of verse 9 says, The day on which it took place was a Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, It's a Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. Actually, the law never says, Thou shalt not carry thy mat on the Sabbath, right? You know what the law says. It's one of the commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 9 says, Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. And yet the fact remains that this man, perhaps for the first time in his life, 
is doing a little bit of manual labor. He's carrying his mat. His healer told him to, and he's taking some heat for doing it. Now, we're going to skip down to verse 16, and we're going to see what happens there, and we're going to come to our fifth observation, and that is that Jesus was called to task for doing this work. It's right there in verse 16. It says, so Jesus was, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. These things. What does that mean? (laughs) Well, it means healing people, and it means telling them to pick up their mat and walk. Don't do these things. How crazy does it sound to you? I mean, can you heal that guy? Then, then you, can go ahead and, you can go ahead and criticize Jesus for doing it. But the Jewish leadership, the religious leadership is so arrogant in who they are. And they believed it was wrong to do that on the Sabbath. In verse 17, you see Jesus' defense. It says, it says in his defense, Jesus said to him, my father is always at work to this very day and I too am working. Now, this passage has a lot of lessons. You could preach a lot of different sermons from this passage, but what I want to talk to you about is just that issue of work. My father is always always at his work, to this very day, and I too am working. How do you feel about work? I mean, how do you feel about hard work? You know, we got a little bit of snow this past week. I don't know if you noticed that or not. I got up one day and I shoveled. Went to bed that night. Got up the next day and there was more snow. And my wife was there. I don't know where she was. She might have been standing in the kitchen or something. She was looking down, doing whatever was in front of her. And I looked at her and I said, well, I have to go outside and do the unthinkable. And she didn't even look up. She's just sitting there. She says, more shoveling? (laughs) Because she knows me. And for some people, that's how they see work, as though it's unthinkable. I just don't want to do any work. I worked with a guy at National Fuel Gas when I was in college. I was a summer employee at National Fuel Gas, and there was a guy that I worked with. He had paired up. You go out in a work truck and you do work, uh, whether it's out on the, on the main line or you're doing it in, the, in town working on meters or whatever. And he was the kind of guy who would work harder to get out of work than if he would just plain do it. I mean, one time he took me somewhere. We went way down in the woods somewhere, down alongside a creek. I said, what are we doing down here? He said, I don't know about you, but I'm sleeping. And he literally got out a book, read it for about five minutes and fell asleep. And I just went outside and played in the creek, you know. What is he doing? I didn't understand that at all. Didn't understand it at all. I finally just said to him, hey, look, if we're going to do that again, drop me off with the tools and with the meters and I'll swap those meters out at that apartment because as much as I don't like work and my wife has said, you work harder to get out of work than if you just do it. And my mother has said that to me as well. The women in my life are always so corrective and good for me, right? Yeah. But as much as I feel that way, I I didn't want to be him. You don't want to be that guy who works harder to get out of work than if you just do it. How do you feel when you're facing hard work? There are people who, their perspective on work is they look forward to work because it actually gives them a payoff, a bit of a profit. Proverbs says that in Proverbs 14, you read hard work brings a profit. And they're like beavers. They're going to get this damn done. And uh, they're kind of great to have around (laughs) in your life, right? And their perspective is usually considered the good perspective, the best perspective, the superior, the pinnacle of perspectives on work belongs to the beavers because they know that they're doing it and it's going to pay off. But is that really the best perspective on work? I mean, let me ask you this question. Do we admire the Elon Musks of this world more than the dutiful servant who in a hidden remote place serves 
the less fortunate. Well, there's no profit in that. Musk is getting the profit. Do we see the pastor who serves a very small rural congregation for decade and decade and decade? Do we see him as foolish because he's not getting the payoff that if he were to go to a big church, he could get? What about the doctor who chooses to leave a thriving profession and go to Africa and care for people, perform surgeries there for free? What's the payoff? There's not a lot of profit in that. I feel like the profit paradigm is not the best of the paradigms. There's a third way to look at work, and it's just to see it as part of living. I mean, you could say it this way. If you're a fish, then swimming is part of the package. And if you're a human, then work is part of the package. Consider again Jesus' words at the end of verse 17, where he says, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. Work is part of existence. It's part of what it means to be alive. It is a keystone of Christian faith. People actually write books, a theology of work, from a Christian perspective. You can read books on this if you're that bored. (laughs) It's kind of interesting the perspective that you gain, though, from something like that. You might want to turn in your Bibles now to Genesis chapter 1, because in the next few minutes, the next 10 minutes, We're going to look at chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. We'll actually start in chapter 3. So we'll be in Genesis 3 in just a moment. I want to talk to you about a couple wrong ideas people have about work. We talked about this Thursday night very briefly when we were at men's group. This is an idea that I had for a long time, this first wrong idea. It's that work is a result of the fall. That the reason I have to work is because of Adam and Eve. I kind of built that on a misunderstanding of Genesis 3.17, where God is speaking to Adam and Eve after they have sinned. And he says to Adam, Cursed be the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. What changed? What's the thing that changed there? The ground. Cursed be the ground because of you. It wasn't that work got, got cursed. It wasn't that work was even created. Something happened to the planet that made work different. Again, in Genesis 4.12, it begins and says, when you work the ground, God is speaking to Adam and Eve after they've sinned. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. The ground used to yield crops. It did it easily without any problem, but something changed. (laughs) That's not how I saw things early on in my life. I mean, as a kid, I didn't see that work was a good thing. I saw it as a bad thing. I believed that I had to do my chores because Adam and Eve sinned. I believed that I had to cut the grass because Adam sinned. I believed that I had to shovel a cow manure because Adam sinned. Adam didn't put that there. (laughs) But I had that in mind. And it really wasn't accurate. Listen again to the last part of Genesis 3, 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat the food from it all the days of your life. The ground is cursed. The ground no longer does what uncursed ground used to do. The ground no longer cooperates with the father. It is a farmer, rather. It is as though it is against the farmer. Work. That's not the problem. It's the planet that's the problem. We know that work is not the result of the fall because if you look back in Genesis 2.8, 
you see that it says the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east in Eden, and there he put the man in it that he formed. And then just seven verses later, it says he put him in there to work the garden and take care of it. Gardening, that's work. That's what Adam and Eve were there to do before they ever sinned. And they did it joyfully and they loved it because the ground cooperated with them. I just kind of imagine them spreading some seeds out and it comes up like crazy and the weeds know not to weed. They know not to be there and it's just a perfect little garden. And, and the weeds pull easy, even if they show up. They, they pull very easily. The work is just, it's just living to do that work. This is living, Adam. Yes, Eve, this is living. It kind of fits with uh, the words of author Dorothy Sayles, Sayers who said this. Think about this sentence. It is more true to say that we live to work than it is to say we work to live. Because before their sin, Adam and Eve found pleasure in the garden. If work is by nature part of the curse, it never would have been in the Garden of Eden. Work is not the result of the fall. Uh, there are other people I know, and this is the second wrong idea I want to talk to you about work, that say that work is the evidence of disbelief or of having little faith. There's a story of the farmer that he took a parcel of land that he had and it was all briars and you know just terribly neglected and misused over the year. And he spent a year cultivating it and getting it ready and he, he transformed it from a patch of tangled briars into a beautiful garden. And the pastor came over to visit. And when the pastor was there, he said, hey, what do you think of my garden here? The pastor said, I was here last year. That was just a mess. He said, yeah. And the pastor says, wow, what God has done with that piece of land. And the farmer says to him, well, Reverend, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but you should have seen that piece of ground when God had it to himself. <laughs> you understand, you can have all the faith you want to, but you're still going to have to do some work. A long time ago, someone came to the church saying they'd been evicted. That kind of thing happens from time to time. Someone gets evicted, they go to a church looking for help, and we worked really hard to help them find a home. And in the midst of helping them, I kind of wanted to make sure that emotionally they're hanging in there because I'm putting myself in their shoes. I don't know what I would do if I didn't know where I was going to sleep that very night, right? So I, I just said to them, I, I looked them in the eye and I said, listen, um, don't worry. Don't worry. You're going to find a place. You're going to find a place. And I was stunned by their reaction. Their response was, we're not worried, preacher. We know God's going to take care of us. We are people of faith. We're not doing anything at all. We just know if we just sit here, God's going to take care of it. It's in his hands. And he was right. They weren't doing anything at all. <laughs> but somebody was doing anything at all. Somebody was doing some work. They thought they were living by faith, trusting God to get them a home. God did that, but he did it through a lot of work of some people that maybe weren't them. You understand, work is not the opposite of faith. Work is the outcome of faith. Wrong idea to think work is the evidence of disbelief. Let me give you a kind of a biblical perspective, if I could. And I just want to take a couple minutes before we celebrate the Lord's Supper to share these few points with you. First, the Bible presents work as a gift. The Bible presents work as a gift. When Laurel and I moved to Kerbinsville, we moved into the lovely parsonage that's owned by the church. We were unpacking all our stuff, getting everything you know how when you move into a new place, you're putting everything where you want it and stuff like that. It's exhausting. And we decided to just go out and survey the, the lawn. Let's go out and look at the, look, let's go out back. Went out back and we looked and said, look, somebody has planted a garden here on the property. And sure enough, someone had planted a garden way back in the spring. This was late June. Way back in spring. You know, in late June, that stuff was ready to pick right now, right now. 
And that was a gift to us. They planted a garden and gave it to whoever their pastor was going to be, and their pastor reaped the produce and weeded the garden, cared for the garden. We loved it. It was a gift. It was a gift that included work, but it was a gift. That's kind of what's going on in Genesis 2.8 when it says the Lord planted a garden in the east in Eden. He put the man there in order to work it, it says in 2.15. The Garden of Eden and the work that came with it, it's a gift from God. How would your disposition, how would your outlook change if you saw work that you have to do, whether it's answering the phone or whether it's paying the bills or doing the dishes or cutting the grass or shoveling the snow? How would your life change if you saw that as a gift from God? Work is a gift from God. Second, biblically speaking, work is imaging. And I'm not sure that that's a word, but I made it one. The Bible presents work as a way for us to display God's likeness, his image. We're made in his image, and when we do what he does, we image him. We are imaging God. I verbed a noun there. I think others have done that too, right? In Genesis 1, early on, we find God engaged in the work of creation. He says, let us make man in our image. I'm really sorry my PowerPoint messed up. It does that when it gets imported sometimes. Let us make man in our image and our likeness. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female, he created them. J.R. Tolkien, you know who that is, right? He's the Lord of the Rings guy. Um, he understood this idea of work as being connected to the image of God. And Tolkien talked about us as being sub-creators. Kind of like there's a contractor and there's a subcontractor. And God is the creator. We are sub-creators. We are little, little makers, <laughs> so to speak. And we imitate him. We image him as we do our work. And it is a privilege. It is a privilege to bear the image of the Most High God. And work allows us to do that. Work allows, even the most menial work allows you to do that. It's a keystone to Christian faith. You can't really rehearse a biblical view of work without talking about the fact that Christ's redemption extends over all creation, even over our work. You know, we just said it. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, the ground was cursed, and all creation was cursed. You know, when you, when you look and you see things on television like the earthquake that shook Japan Years ago, remember the nuclear reactor was crumbled in that and how tragic that was. And then before that, do you remember the tsunami in Indonesia and, and, and in that area and how it just leveled villages and killed countless people? I can't remember. The, was it hundreds of thousands of people gone in a moment from that? And, you know, when we talk about the problem of evil in our world, you know, we say, well, why was that child neglected that way? We can say, well, it was a sin of the parents. I mean, that's an easy sin-pain connection to make. But a tsunami's a little different. Because what did those villagers do that they got singled out that way? What's going on there, right? That's a hard question. But if you understand the reality that the ground is cursed, then you know why the ground moans. If you understand that the ground has been cursed, then you know why the ground doesn't just fight the farmer, but it fights everything. And you understand natural destruction on a whole new level. Thursday night, we were reading Romans 8. We were in verse 19 and following. We're talking about Christ's redemptive work on the cross and how he redeems everything. And in verse 19, let me just read. It says, For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Okay, here's what he's saying. 
creation itself, the ground, the planet, the stars, the moon, it is all waiting, anticipating the end of time. There's some heavy figurative language going on there. It's waiting, anticipating the return of Christ. Verse 20. For creation was subjected to frustration when? Genesis 3, when he said, Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. Creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. Why? In the hope that creation itself might be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Creation, it's cursed. But creation is becoming liberated by that curse. And at the end of time, it will be completely redeemed from that curse. You know, theologians like to argue about this. At the end of time, is God going to make a new heaven, brand new out of, out of nothing heaven and new earth? Or is he going to recreate the existing one? Is new heaven, new earth just mean made new? Which is it going to be? And I can argue either of those positions for you if you'd like me to. My boss is here, my district superintendent. He sat up a little straighter and said, yeah, you're going to deal with this, Pastor Steve? Let's see you do that, right? You know what I do? I lean to the second one. Because it is so keeping within God's nature to take that which is broken and make it beautiful. It is so keeping in his character to take that which has been cursed and behaved as it was cursed and behaved in a cursed way and make it holy and beautiful and pure and lovely. It is exactly what he does with you and me. And so the scripture reads in verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. It does. It groans in the form of tornadoes, in the form of tsunamis, volcanoes, you name it. It's waiting for its final redemption. Teacher from California has long since passed away named Ray Stedman. He said something that just, I can't get it out of my mind. It's, it's really true. He said it was man's sin that put thorns on the roses. Did you ever think of that? It was man's sin that put thorns on the roses. If he's right, and I think he probably is, then someday, someday you and I will be able to ha- handle thornless roses. And it won't be because they're genetically engineered by humans. To, you know, they took the seeds out of oranges. I like that. Right? It's not going to be because, here it is. It's going to be that the rose itself has been redeemed by the work of Christ. That'll be cool. That'll be so cool. Uncursed. Everything sad is working backward. Is that how that quote goes? Do I have that, Laurel? It's a Tolkien quote. You're not going to help me, are you? No? I love you, buddy. Let me say this to you. Someday, the earth will not fight you when you plant. Someday, it will produce what you cannot imagine like you cannot imagine it. Someday, the second law of thermodynamics, which says entropy increases, that means decay rules, everything decays. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Someday, that second law of thermodynamics is going to be in the second seat. It's not going to rule. Someday, you and I will understand that work is a keystone to Christian faith, and we will rejoice in being able to do it. We will love it. You know, uh, I think to myself, I wish that I had learned this when I was 13, but I probably wouldn't have. I kind of wish that I'd preached this sermon when I was 30, 
but I still might not have got it. (laughs) I'm really hoping that I got it today. That I can look at work and see it as a gift from God. A keystone to what it means to be Christian. To what it means to be human. God wasn't afraid of work and isn't afraid of work. When Jesus went to the cross, he sweat, as it were, drops of blood. He worked, in a sense, to carry his own cross so he could endure it no more, and someone else, a stranger, carried it for him. (laughs) He did the work of hanging on the cross and looking at the disciple he loved and said, Behold your mother, behold your son. The work of taking care of mom before I expire. He did the work of redeeming you and me and anyone else who will trust in him. He did the work of redeeming a cursed earth and uncursing it. We celebrate that action when we celebrate communion. And we're going to do that at this time. If you did not get the communion vessel which is so handy you would think it was made by Ronco, right? I don't know if you're old enough to know what that means. You know, it, it looks so uh, plastic, doesn't it? But I don't want to be without it. Because that which it contains represents the Redeemer. The one who makes life worthwhile. The one who dismisses the curse. I'm going to ask that we say a prayer together. The scripture says one should examine oneself before eating the bread or drinking the cup. And then I'll ask an elder uh, to pray for the bread and for the cup. I have a couple elders here. Do they have mics? Awesome. Yeah, great. So let me pray first, and then David, I'm going to ask you to pray uh, specifically for the bread. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, none of us are worthy of the great love that you've given us. It's not like we deserved it and earned it. We are not worthy of your love for us. And yet, God, you demonstrated your love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are pleased to to rest in that sacrifice. Confessing our sins and trusting that Jesus' death pays for our sins and following after him with hearts that love him and want to bear his image. As we hold this, these elements in our hand and as we ponder our unworthiness, we take a moment to confess our sin knowing that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We take a moment, Father, just to to express our thanks for your love. David, would you please express thanks for the bread? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as we take this small piece of bread, Lord, that represents the body that you sacrificed on our behalf. Let us take a moment to realize what that sacrifice meant for our lives and 
the victory that was established in that act. Just pray, Lord, that you be with us today as we take this. Bless us and let us realize the life that we have before us, that it could be a life of service and a life of blessing for you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You might need to remove your mask. It has been my experience that when you try to take this with a mask on, it doesn't work. The body of Christ. And the scripture tells us that afterward he took the cup. I'm going to ask uh, Josh if he would pray a prayer of thanks for the blood of Christ. Lord God, we thank you that, that you intercede for us. That the enemy, Satan, accuses us and reminds us of past mistakes and past sins. He tries to remind us of what we should have done. Almost like a something worse than a mosquito that just won't leave you alone. Constantly reminding us of our shortcomings. Trying to tell us that we're worthless. That we don't deserve it. But you, Jesus, you baptize us by the Spirit. And the Spirit nudges us and says, that we are yours. That we, re- we fully recognize you're right. We, we're worthless. That in the grand scheme of things, we don't deserve it. That you deserve it all. It is by the blood of the Lamb that we are cleansed and the word of our testimony. So God, right now, we pray silently in our minds and in our hearts a prayer of thanks that the accuser is wrong. that we are yours. And it's by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit that we can move on. And we thank you, Lord God, for that. That no matter where we're at right now at this moment, we are liberated. We are free. That we can shed this coat of shame and this coat of, of failure and we can clothe ourselves in humility, knowing that we belong to you. God, that's what we need to do this day. Take up our cross today. Take up this, this shield of your protection, knowing that we are part of your family. And whatever that work is, whether that work is planting a seed or whether that work is working beside another human being, working with a machine, whatever it happens to be, God, we can do that. And we can do that for your glory no matter what. We thank you that you give us this gift. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Josh. The blood of Christ.